Hi, this is David Yaz at the Boston Podcast Network, hoping you are staying safe and healthy during this period of precaution over the coronavirus. It's difficult to connect with your clients and contacts in a period such as this, but here we continue to produce podcasts that allow you to connect with the people that you want to reach. You've got a rapt audience like never before. People are home, they're listening, and they're waiting to hear from you. We can create a professional podcast with a quick turnaround and do the whole thing remotely so you don't have to leave your home. Get in touch with us at pod617.com. Welcome to the Ask Harry podcast. This is Harry Margolis, and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning. On today's episode of Ask Harry, Harry chats with Kevin Urbach, National Director of the Academy of Special Needs Planners, on the subject of special needs planning. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me today. Uh, as you know, we're going to be talking about special needs planning and in this program about special needs planning for parents or grandparents, for usually for their children or grandchildren who have some kind of disability in, or special need. But as we do on all of our Ask Harry podcasts, we start with a question from the askharry.info website. And of course, it's really Ask Harry and Ask Kevin today. So the question we're going to respond to is this. Can a special needs trust for a minor child pay the parent's mortgage or rent? And what about buying a house for the whole family to live in? So what's your answer to that question? Well, uh, like many attorneys, I have a standard answer to a question, and it goes like this. It depends. Um, <laughs> it depends on a few things. Uh, one of the things it really depends on is what what type of trust are we talking about? So you did mention that we're going to be talking about third party special needs trusts. And there is another type that we can, uh, that we call first party special needs trust. So the distinction between the two is, is kind of simple to understand. A third party trust is funded with anyone's money in the entire planet other than the loved one with a disability. So as long as they're the beneficiary, they cannot put any of their own money into a third party trust they must use what we call a first party special needs trust. And that distinction is really important for the answer to this question because third party trusts are quite simple to set up uh, legally speaking. You're, there are certain requirements you have to follow, but once you follow those very basic requirements, you can really allow the trustee, the person who manages that trust, um, you know, tons of authority to how to manage uh, the assets for the benefit of that you know loved one with special needs. So in this question where you have a minor child, that minor child obviously would be disabled in some way. And the question would be, can that trustee of that special needs trust pay the parent's mortgage or rent? Well, if it's a third party trust, we're gonna have to look at the trust document. And the trust document is kind of the rule book for what you can and can't do with the money. So typically, um, the idea of a special needs trust is to enhance the quality of life of that minor child or the, or the beneficiary. And if paying for rent or mortgage would do that, you know, there's an argument that you can go ahead and pay it. However, there's a competing legal doctrine, and that's the duty of support that a parent owes a child. So it's really the parent's responsibility until the child is 18 to pay for all the food, clothing, and shelter that the child needs to, you know, 
become an adult, before they become an adult, that parent really has that responsibility. So the trustee then would be put into a tough position because I, I presume the reason they're being asked to pay for that mortgage or rent would be because um, the parents can't pay for it. Or, you know, under current circumstances, maybe they've hit, had a financial hardship and the only money available to them might be in the trust. So then as a trustee, the decision then is, first off, does the trust document prohibit it, which it may. Um, if it doesn't prohibit it, can they go ahead and do it anyway? Well, they have to make sure they're not making a distribution that might interfere with the parent's duty of support. But if the parent doesn't have money to pay for this, I think, and, and basically the effect of not paying the mortgage or rent would be an eviction. I, I think you could make the argument that this would enhance the quality of life of the beneficiary. Um, another way to handle this might be instead of just going out and paying the mortgage or rent, especially in a temporary situation where they may just have, you know, a financial hardship for a few months, maybe instead the trustee could loan the money to the parents, cover the mortgage or rent with an expectation of, of being repaid. Um, I think that would be a safer course for the trustee because it's very important when we're making decisions on behalf of a trustee to remember that they have what we call a fiduciary duty to that minor child to make sure that they're using all of their efforts um, to enhance the quality of life of that minor child. And they're not really playing favorites or, you know, having a conflict of interest. Um, I always call the duty a trustee owes a beneficiary the same duty a parent owes the child. Um, it's the highest duty under the law. So we want to make sure that if we advise a trustee to go ahead and pay a, you know, a third party parent's mortgage or rent, that we've really thought through the ramifications of that. So in a first party special needs trust, that's one funded with the beneficiary's own money. The rules are a bit more strict and every distribution has to be for the primary benefit or sole benefit of the beneficiary. So that would be a much harder argument to pay for the parent's mortgage or rent. Um, in cases like that, sometimes what we do is if the parent is providing caregiving for that minor child, and that caregiving is necessary because of the minor child's disability, we can argue that they're not, they're providing the basic duty of support that they would for any child, um, but they're providing extra support as a result of the disability. And that's something that perhaps the trustee can pay for. And then they can turn around and use that payment to pay for the mortgage or rent. So then the question, the second part of that question, what about buying a house that the whole family lives in? If that's possible, um, you know, if there's a sufficient assets in the trust to do it, this is what I would normally recommend. But then that does drive in some more of these additional issues um, of fiduciary duty by the trustee to the beneficiary. One of those is that the trustee has a legal duty to make those assets productive. Um, in this case, because it's a trust owned house, the parents may have to pay rent themselves to live in the house owned by the trust. Or again, maybe we can come up with a services for free rent agreement with the parents. Um, and again, trying to describe this a lot to a family who may not understand some of the legal nuances that a trustee is bound by 
Uh, sometimes the discussions can be <laughs> quite problematic because they're they don't understand why they would have to pay rent to live in a house for you know f- with their minor child when they're taking care of them. Um, but again, it's it's a legal distinction that when the trust is set up, that money is really the minor child's money. It's just in a protected environment like a special needs trust. So sometimes we get creative with the buying of the house because sometimes the parents can maybe get a mortgage and to buy the house and the special needs trust may just pay the 10 or 20% down payment. And in that case, we just make sure the trust has 10 to 20% interest in the house. Parents get a mortgage. They pay on that. They own the other 80 to 90%. Um, and then hopefully everybody can continue to pay. But whenever you have joint ownership issues like that, sometimes things arise. Uh, you know, Parents could uh, have a financial uh, setback and they need and they're unable to pay their mortgage. What, what's the trustee to do then? Or maybe the parents want to move. Or maybe that minor child grows up and now they don't want to live in that house anymore because at age 18, they are legally an adult. And if they have capacity, they can decide where they want to live. And it may not be the house that they had purchased. And so the trustee may have to sell while the parents and maybe other siblings or minor children are living there. So again, these are tough questions when you're dealing with a special needs trust um, and then housing, especially for a minor child. For an adult beneficiary, it's a little easier to make some of these decisions. But with a minor child, you really have that parental duty of support kind of to to think about, which is, uh, again, sometimes you're stuck with your local probate judge and their decision on what a parent should or should not do. And sometimes that's different than what uh, you might think or, you know, what your attorney thinks. So, Kevin, that's an excellent, very complete answer. I... I might add a couple other things. Um, mm-hmm. We always, if we can, shy away from having any interest in houses uh, um, just because uh, some of the headaches that you mentioned, in addition to um, the possibility of the other co-owners not uh, paying what they're being able to pay what they're supposed to and the child growing up and not wanting to live there or feeling compelled by the um, by wanting to take care of his or her family to stay stay there even though that's not what the child would want. Otherwise, um, that's all tough. But um, of course, sometimes you have no other choice because you do have to preserve the child's interest in whatever's um, whatever's being spent. Um, and that might only be by taking an interest in the house. Um, the other other factor that we always consider in all of this, in addition to kind of what the what the law is in terms of fiduciary duty and parents' duty of support. Is, is to some extent just how much money does the trust have? Mm-hmm. So if uh, if this is something that the trust can afford to help out without uh, really undermining its long-term financial viability, we're going to be a lot more receptive to helping out than if it's clearly digging into principle and it's going to and the trust isn't going to last the way it's supposed to. So even though again that's perhaps. Well, it is part of the fiduciary duty to preserve the trust. So it is, it is a trust consideration, even though if it's, it may be, um, it doesn't, it may or may not take into account the, the family's duty of support. So just a little more to add into this uh, complicated calculus. Yeah, it's, a, it's always a challenge. Usually when we're, if we do decide to buy a house or, you know, come into some other arrangement with the parents, 
we usually want them to sign a, a separate contract, like a housing contract that really lays mm -hmm. out who's paying for the insurance, who's paying for the upkeep and maintenance, um, you know, who's paying property taxes, all those other side things that I think a lot of families kind of um, kind of miss when they think about the trust buying a house. Right. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's always a challenge, um, you know, and not to get into too many war stories, but there's just, you know, especially when that minor child is incapacitated, maybe they have a severe disability. Um, sometimes, you, you know, you're dealing with families and, and then what they'll do is let everybody in the family live in the house and mm -hmm. the trustee may not know about it. <laughs> right. um, and in one case, one notorious case we were involved in, the uh, parents decided to open a meth lab in the house. Oh, it was the trust owned home. So, and they didn't find out until the police called after the raid. And so fortunately the trustee in that case was a professional and they had somebody come in and take the child to the grandmothers and they really stepped up. But again, now the trust is in possession of a house that had had a meth lab. <laughs> so again, there's, you know, I would say that is the small minority of cases. Most of the times there's a, you know, there's a good arrangement with the family. The family usually is there to help the minor child. And usually this thing works out pretty well. Um, again, as you noted, and, you know, sometimes money is the deciding factor, especially when they can't pay anymore. Right. Well, so uh, that uh, that was a good question to start with. But let's turn to the topic of our, our this podcast, which is really what is special needs planning all about when you have a a child with a disability and um, for a lot of parents, one of their worst fears is what's going to happen when they're no longer there to take care of that child. Cause it's uh, yeah. um, someone who has, whether it's cognitive or physical disability may need assistance throughout his or her life. And we often see parents in their eighties still taking care of their 50 and 60 year old children mm -hmm. uh, because there's doesn't seem to be any alternative, but, but there has to be. And so what can parents do? Well, I think you define special needs planning as, you know, what are we going to do when mom and dad aren't there to providing these services typically for free? Um, you know, so that's what special needs planning is. And so, again, it's not a one size fits all plan. It always deter. It's always, you know, disability is as, you know, as big a group as it can possibly be. It can be anything from a physical to a mental and then many variations in between. Um, and so sometimes we might be creating a plan for somebody who's quadriplegic but has full capacity to manage their other affairs. Sometimes we're dealing with somebody who has full physical ca capacity but absolutely cannot manage their um, you know, personal or financial affairs because of a mental condition. So again, the plan would change depending on the type of disability we're dealing with. Um, and then the other kind of bigger picture item is, you know, one part we want to solve is the financial because usually the mon money is going to be needed to replace the parents to either hire professionals or to support other family members in caring for those that loved one with special needs. And so then we have to, you know, that's where the special needs trust comes in. It's really the primary planning tool for parents and other family members to leave assets to a person with a disability that does not interfere with their eligibility for public benefits. So that's one of the aspects of special needs planning is we have to find as many sources of revenue as possible 
because typically when we're talking about disability in this context, it's it's a type of disability that is severe that will last for a long time and that prevents that person from basically getting a job and earning a living. So because of their disability, they can't work or can only work a little bit. And if that's the case, we're basically almost creating a retirement plan for an 18-year-old because <laughs> that's all the money they're going to see is usually from parents, other family members, or and then maybe uh, whatever they can find from the government benefits. And so it's important to structure this carefully so that you create a trust to kind of hold the inheritances or gifts that people give to that you know, minor child with a disability or any child with a disability. Um, and then we want to make sure that that legal structure doesn't interfere with their eligibility for, say, supplemental security income, SSI, or Medicaid, or in California, we call it Medi-Cal. Or in Massachusetts, we call it MassHealth. MassHealth. Uh, Medi-Cal's catchier, in my opinion. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> We can debate that. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, try spelling it. It always goes to medical. But um, yeah. I digress. <laughs> so, but again, it's important to get qualified for those programs. Often, sometimes I have parents come to me and they're like, well, we've never used public benefits. I don't think we need them. And I'm like, well, that's because we have you. Mm -hmm. um, you're here. You're, you know, you're earning a living and we're able to, you know, they're able to qualify for your health plan. Um, but when you're gone, what, what are we going to do? And sometimes it's a kind of an eye opener for the parents to try to think through some of the ramifications of, of what we're doing. There's just another part of the plan, and again, this goes into the person who really doesn't have capacity, which is one of those slippery legal terms that I don't think I've ever seen a really good definition of, kind of, you know it when you see it, although I guess there's, you know, doctors and, and other medical professionals who can issue a diagnosis, but... Um, but, but the diagnosis, of course, is just a diagnosis, and yeah, and it, uh, legal capacity is a, is, isn't a diagnosis. So. Right. It, it gets a little, you know, well, we, we could spend a whole nother podcast on capacity. Right. <laughs> just saying that somebody lacks capacity means that they lack the ability to basically manage their personal or financial affairs. Um, so when we look at this, the um, the additional planning we have to do is, is who's going to decide where that person lives when they're an adult. So, a big age for people with disabilities is age 18 um, mm -hmm. because under the state, the, the almost every state, I would presume every state, but I haven't done a 50 state review. Um, they're legally an adult at age 18. Um, so even if it doesn't make any sense, you can see that the person will never be able to manage their own affairs. They take away the rights of the parent to make decisions on behalf of that adult. And so at that point, the parents may decide they want to keep that authority and then they can obtain what we call in California a conservatorship and other states may call a guardianship, but it's basically the same thing is they're appointing someone to make those legal decisions on their behalf. And the big ones usually are medical, you know, living and stuff like that, or the ability to enter into contracts, all kinds of things. So, Again, usually the parent handles that. What happens when that parent leaves or is gone? Um, you, sometimes the parents will come in, hey, we want our, the sibling to do it. And again, sometimes they'll suggest a sibling and they haven't even talked to the sibling whether they want to do mm -hmm. it or not. 
And right. sometimes that sibling's going to want to have a really their own burden. Yeah. I mean, they could have their own family. They may have an opportunity to move cross country and get a good job. So again, you have to think through all of these kind of what ifs um, when you're doing a special needs plan. And oftentimes what I recommend is that we keep family involved, but we get we hire professionals to kind of manage some of the day-to-day care needs, like um, a professional trustee to manage the special needs trust. And that might be a, a bank, a corporate fiduciary. Sometimes it's a charity. Um, there are individuals who are, are licensed to be trustees of special needs trusts in California. We have that. Um, I know other states are starting to think about doing that as well. I think Arizona has some professional licensed individuals, and I know Michigan is working on the legislation for that. So I usually like to have them serve as the trustee and then have the family involved in a different way. Um, And usually I want the family to make those personal care decisions about medical, you know, where they live. And so one thing is if the parents are the guardianship or are the guardian or conservator, we want to name another family member maybe as a co-guardian or conservator so that if the parents die, there's there's already somebody in place, a sibling, cousin, aunt, uncle, whoever. Um, if the, if they don't do that, then we usually have to file another pleading with the court to get somebody else established. And there might be a gap in protection for that loved one. If that person with a disability might be disabled physically, the issue might be that they still have capacity. And if they do, when they turn 18, I usually recommend that they, um, fill out and complete a power of attorney for financial management and also a, an advanced health care directive or a power of attorney for medical decisions. Um, and that way they can appoint their own people that they want to take care of them, their medical and personal care decisions, you know, if, if they lose capacity to do so. So again, the, the big picture of special needs planning is, you know, financial, medical, personal. And the one document I strongly recommend every you know, parent, grandparent, anyone caring for someone with a disability that they should prepare is something we call a memorandum of intent. Mm -hmm. And with this, so at the end of the day, when you create a special needs trust, remember this is the entity that's going to hold all the money and it has some very basic rules about how the trustee is supposed to use that money. Um, But it doesn't have a lot of specifics. It doesn't have the, you know, they want to take a trip around the world. Is that going to be a prudent use of the money? Well, maybe if there's sufficient money and in the memo of intent, the parent's um, intent was that this person be allowed to travel. So maybe that is acceptable. Um, Or maybe, you know, they, they have just so much money and they want to make sure that their loved one is cared for, but they're worried about spending too much early. So they might put them on, you know, a strict spending plan or budget at the beginning. So a lot of the information that the trustee will use and other family members will use is basically the information that we lose when the parents die. So if you create a memo of intent, there's a ton of information you can put down on paper, and it could be just basically their daily plan. It could be therapies they use, therapies they've tried and and found did not work. It could be the favorite uncle or the aunt that they don't want them ever to see again. <laughs> it could be, you know, they want to encourage travel. 
they like music. And again, when a trustee is making decisions on how to spend money, they can look to that memo of intent. When a guardian or conservator is making a medical decision, they can look at that and say, what would the parents have wanted us to do in this situation? And we have guidelines on our Academy of Special Needs Planners website for considerations that parents should use when creating a memo of intent. I think it's the most important document that we kind of work with our clients to obtain because that is really the heart of the special needs plan. Thank you, Kevin. I, I think that's a great summary of, of planning. I um, ask you about two other things or two things we, we run into. Um, one is you talked about what happens at age 18 and, um, and that, that is a, can be a problematic time for lots of reasons. Uh, not only does the parent lose their natural role as guardian and conservator and have to go to court to, to get that back if the, if the child um, is cognitively impaired. We've also seen parents lose their ability to talk to schools because schooling can continue for another, yeah. up another four years. Um, and the, um, and whether there's a gap because they don't have guardianship and the school says, well, I can't talk to you or the, the child does have cognitive ability. Um, but again, isn't going to be a good advocate for himself or herself. And I wonder what you, what you advise clients around that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, you know, the IEPs with school are a big deal. And when they turn 18, I, I know some school districts are kind of harsh and they ask the student at that point, do you want your parents here? Aren't you an adult now? You know, you don't want them to make decisions for you. And they kind of coach them into getting the parents kicked out of the room, um, which is kind of, not appropriate in my opinion, yeah. but that's what they will do. Um, I will say that that is not, in my experience, not the co most common things that most of the school districts will do. I found most of the school districts will work, continue to work with the parents. As long as the student is okay with the parents remaining in the room, you know, that they can't kick them out. But again, if the, the student is 18 years or older, they're an adult. And if they say they don't want them in the room and they don't have a legal document that allows them to stay in the room, then they're out. So certainly um, I have set up conservatorships and guardianships just for that purpose, mm -hmm. um, just to make sure that the parents continue to have a say in how the IEP is managed, uh, what kind of services they're going to obtain. Because again, you know, one of the biggest, I guess, one of the things I, we, I kind of alluded to, but in state was all of the advocacy that the parents have been providing. How do we replace that, too? Mm -hmm. um, because the schools are fighting you for every nickel. The public benefit programs never tell you what you're qualified for. So you have to go out and advocate for those. Um, it could be simply a housing discrimination case. It could be all kinds of things that come up. And I think you know, as parents get older, they learn more and more of the system and they learn how to fight it. And so again, that's part of a special needs plan is making sure we still have that advocate role filled. And in our special needs trust, we have a whole section on just care management and advocacy. You know, how do we handle that situation when it arises and if mom and dad aren't there? So that's, yeah, that is very important. And, and the other question I wanted to ask you was about funding the special needs trust because Often families don't have tons of money and often the fact that they have to uh, spend more time and energy caring for the child with special needs means 
that uh, they, they don't earn as much money. They, they, they may become a one-income household instead of a two-income household. So again, there's fewer resources. And uh, so I'm wondering what you think about life insurance as a means to fund special needs trusts. Yeah, I mean, life insurance is the funding source of choice. And when we're talking life insurance, you know, certainly a term policy has uses, um, especially early on. Um, if they're worried about uh, something happening to them, you know, within the next two to five years or something like that. Um, but generally, we recommend some type of whole life policy, one that is in existence because, and I'm going to guess on the statistics, which is always a good idea. But <laughs> for a term policy, I've heard like upwards to 98 to 99% of those never pay off. Right. Because the insurance companies, you know, they're really smart about, you know, when people are going to make it and when they are not. But, but that also means the premiums are relatively low. Yeah. Policies. Yeah. So it's a, it's, to me, it's a good, uh, you know, if, if they're only going to need like insurance for five or 10 years based off employment or some other issues, maybe it's a way to kind of offset that loss if something unexpected happens. But a whole life policy is one that will pay off and it will pay off over time. But as you just noted, it is more expensive and it is more of a challenge. Um, but I think just like special needs planning, you really need to find a financial advisor who understands special needs planning because, again, it's it's kind of its unique area. It's just like attorneys. You know, there's many estate planners out there. There's very, very few special needs planners. And again, I think for both kind of planning, financial planning, uh, estate planning, it's really the public benefits and just dealing with people with disabilities that kind of stands you apart from that type of planning. Um, and so it's important to understand, you know, the thing about insurance. Um, again, whole life, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, I have all this term insurance. And I'm like, well, if you're one of the 1%, <laughs> you're going to be set. Right. But 99% of want to be one of that 1%. Yeah. yeah you, you don't, yeah, you may not want that one. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so the 99% chance that that's not going to work out. So you really need to maybe, and it may be some really tough budgeting to, to make sure they can continue to pay that whole life premium. But oftentimes that's the only money that funds the trust, either that, and sometimes it's the family home. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I often uh, talk to families about perhaps that's something if you have young parents that the grandparents might be able to pay for as a way to support and help out the family. So this has been great, Kevin. And you mentioned the memoran memorandum of intent on the Academy of Special Needs Planners website, which and you're the national director of the Academy of Special Needs Planners. The website is at specialneedsanswers.com. And in terms of finding a specialist who um, either a financial planner or an attorney who knows a lot about this field um, there are a lot of those listed on the site or members so thank you very much kevin thank you harry my, my pleasure thank you for listening to the ask harry podcast if you liked what you heard please share it with your friends and colleagues if you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes.